wider mission really is to build programs in U.S., Europe, and China, you know, over the next three years to be able to accelerate these solutions and encourage mass adoption from from large companies. Because at the end of the day, they hold the most capital. They're able to make the most impact. So whether you like it or not, that partnership needs to, to be made uh, in order for us to win, in order for us to succeed, to really to fully decarbonize. And so, you know, how do we bridge that gap and how can we accelerate the success of these startups and solutions across the world and across these financial verticals? Crowdfunding, blockchain, AI, neobanks. What do all these buzzwords have to do with fighting climate change? That's what we discuss on this episode of our Ditch series from Political Climate, a podcast on energy and environmental issues presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I'm your host, Julia Piper, a contributing editor at Green Tech Media and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. If you're just joining us, the Ditch series is all about fossil fuel divestment and the rapidly evolving world of green finance. We're airing these episodes in addition to our regular Thursday shows on climate and energy politics and policies. You can find all segments of the Ditch series on the Political Climate Podcast feed, which is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, or pretty much wherever you'd like to listen. Or you can find us on the leading independent environmental news platform, Our Daily Planet. Simply search for the term ditched on ourdailyplanet.com. Now, back to the buzzwords. You've probably heard of the term fintech, or financial technology. In this episode, I speak to the authors of a new report on climate fintech, an emerging ecosystem that leverages digital technology to help move more capital into climate change solutions. The report, entitled simply The Climate Fintech Report, offers a valuable overview of what this ecosystem looks like today. The report was released this month by the startup accelerator New Energy Nexus. In the following interview, I speak with Andrew Chang, Climate Fintech Program Director at New Energy Nexus based in Shanghai, and Aaron McCreary, New Energy Nexus Fintech Lead for Europe and the United States, based in Oakland. Before digging into what climate finance is all about and who the key players are, I asked Andrew to provide a brief description of New Energy Nexus to start us off. Here's this conversation. Thanks, Julia. So New Energy Nexus, we're an international organization that supports clean energy entrepreneurs with funds, accelerators, and networks. Uh, You know, we started in California, but now we have programs in China, India, Indonesia, Thailand, Vietnam, Philippines, and East Africa. So we run very thematic programs all around the world, really focused on clean energy technologies, including you know, energy efficiency, electric mobility, storage, uh, off-grid renewables. This is sort of the, 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 the sort of vast area of expertise that we operate in. And our focus is really how do we how do we grow the success of entrepreneurs and you know entrepreneurs around the world need different things and so each of our programs offer you know different programming benefits uh, such as uh, capacity building support services uh, grants uh, as well as uh, commercialization opportunities a lot of our work is working with some of the biggest corporates in the world including you know LG uh, energy solution as well as Honda Kia and connecting them with some of the leading uh, battery and EV startups in the world so 
um, climate fintech is is an area that we uh, are now operating in, and it's really exciting to be part of that uh, new new industry. Yeah, you guys are on the leading edge of bringing these clean technology solutions into the world. I've, I've been amazed as I've learned more about New Energy Nexus, just how much work is involved in that. Liaising with the entrepreneurs, but then bringing in policy layers, bringing in those corporate partners that you mentioned. It's a lot of stuff to make uh, to make the big goals that we all want to hit on the climate front a reality. And uh, these new solutions are clearly a part of that. So we've been talking to investors, policymakers, activists, and others as part of this Ditched series about various ways in which finance and climate action intersect. So when we talk about climate fintech and this technology layer, Aaron, could you describe what that, what that technology layer is all about and how it fits into this broader theme of moving money out of fossil fuels and into cleaner energy solutions? Yeah, sure. You know, we get this question a lot and it's understandable, you know, what is climate fintech? And we recognize that defining an ecosystem is not always the easiest uh, thing to do, but we think that these two worlds are intersecting in, in deliberate ways now. And so we thought it'd be useful to sort of cast a wide net and paint, uh, illustrate an umbrella for everybody to operate within. And so we're defining climate fintech as uh, digital financial technology, which is catalyzing decarbonization. And we see, you know, that fintech has already disrupted the financial system in, on a lot of different layers. It's a, it's a very potent change agent. So the real question is, how do we use that specifically to reduce greenhouse gas emissions? And so when we're talking about technology, especially financial technology, a lot of other buzzwords uh, come come to the top, uh, blockchain, artificial intelligence, the internet of things. So how are those applied technologies used in the financial system to move money in the right direction? And so we've tried to break down that question in the report. So in the report, you say that the benefits of climate fintech are wide ranging from downstream to upstream. So just to complete the picture that we're painting here, what exactly did you mean by that? Who are the stakeholders that climate fintech can affect? Absolutely. We've sort of uh, developed a, a hierarchy of stakeholders, starting from the top, which is uh, insurance companies, asset managers, uh, pension funds, wealth managers, investment banks, retail banks. These are the folks that are holding trillions uh, uh, of, of capital. And at the bottom, sort of at the sort of downstream, you have clean energy projects, right? You have more wind projects, uh, more EV adoption, uh, solar projects, uh, et cetera. And climate fintech sits in the middle transitioning or providing a smooth and efficient and accessibility for uh, integration into these larger um, stakeholders in the financial institutions, providing them with tools that can enable them to make better decisions uh, that are more uh, environmentally aligned. But at the same time, you know, what's very interesting, which is a phenomenon that we're seeing is the growing young millennials that are uh, becoming not only conscious uh, about the environment, uh, but having choice. And choice and being more conscious is now 
encouraging some of the big players to really think about how do we continue to service our customers and what they want and what they need. And that type of citizen empowerment drives big decisions in, in, in some of these largest financial institutions. And so I think that's where sort of the upstream downstream dynamic come into play. At the end of the day, the flow of capital, you know, it goes from one place to the other, but it's the players and the people at the table that get to decide where it flows and how it flows. Yeah, that's interesting. People are voting with their wallets then, you know, moving their money to places that they feel better about or feel like are aligned with their, in this case, climate values. And that, when people do it en masse, can influence the biggest financial players in the world, if I'm hearing you correctly. Exactly, exactly. And then the digital tools allow people to move their money to other platforms or gain offsets and things like that. So it's kind of the like linkage. It's like the the fabric between these players. That's right. And 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 that's what they are. They're tools. A lot of these solutions are tools to enable enable our choices to be heard to the top and to ensure that uh, what we are voting for with our wallet is actually being implemented. And so it's really interesting to see this dynamic between, you know, uh, you know, from your largest bank to all the way down to your downstream customer uh, or downstream citizen. And, you know, in addition to these stakeholders, you also have the regulatory and political environment as well. And at least in, in China, and we're seeing a lot in all three regions, really, US, Europe, and China, this is a very important role, right? If there's no agreement from the top, who's going to be holding these large financial institutions responsible and ensuring that a percentage of their investment is is divesting from fossil fuels and into clean energy. So uh, it's it's sort of a, a, a group effort, uh, a team effort from all parties um, and all stakeholders. I think it's a super fun part of this discussion, the fintech piece, because it's where we're seeing disruption, we're seeing innovation align then with mission and big pockets of money, which can do a lot of stuff in the world. And there's a great quote from Marilyn Waite at the Hewlett Foundation at the start of your report. And that is, she says, quote, Put simply, solving climate change requires creating a new inertia. Since the Industrial Revolution, large economies have been driven by carbon-emitting energy, agriculture, and industrial systems. The invisible engine underlying it all has been finance. And at last, finance is facing disruption. I think that's so interesting and really encapsulates what you guys are getting at in this report. Yeah, no, Marilyn, she's she's really been the the driving force behind this and, and enabling all of this to happen. And and we're excited. You know, this report is only step one to the wider mission. And the wider mission really is to build programs in US, Europe, and China, you know, over the next three years to be able to accelerate these solutions and encourage mass adoption from from large companies. Because at the end of the day, they hold the most capital, they're able to make the most impact. So whether you like it or not, that partnership needs to to be made uh, in order for us to win, in order for us to succeed, to really fully decarbonize and make some serious impact uh, within the short time that we have to meeting our climate goals. And so, you know, how do we bridge that gap 
and how can we accelerate the success of these startups and solutions across the world and across these financial verticals? Well, let's get into some of those solutions and the financial verticals. So I understand there are eight categories. They are payments, banking, lending, investing, trading, risk analysis, insure tech, and reg tech, or reporting and accounting for that last one. We've touched on various elements of these throughout this series, but I guess if you're just to elaborate, um, why did you look at those eight sectors and which one would you say uh, people might be most familiar with if they're just the average consumer? Yeah, you know, the goal was really to sort of create an umbrella for all of this really exciting activity that's happening throughout the financial system. And I think it helps to sort of break down, you know, quote unquote finance, which can seem like this very opaque, overbearing sort of entity, which is hard to dissect and understand. And so we really wanted to clarify what these different business units or, or, or verticals do. Um, and how they can have a positive impact on both citizens and large financial incumbents. So, you know, obviously one which comes to mind, which is uh, extremely accessible and and sort of front and center for average citizens is banking, retail banking. And so we look at a number of applications and platforms out there which are helping individuals to bank in a more climate-conscious way. Right. So banking, we recently had the Neobank aspiration on the podcast talking about how they do not use people's funds when they create an account with aspiration to then invest those funds on the back end into fossil fuel projects, which I don't think many people realize is that when you create a checking account or a savings account, those dollars don't just sit there. The bank uses them in various ways and they can sometimes support fossil fuels. So is that the kind of thing you're talking about? 100%. You know, it's it's funny, you can be as climate conscious as you want at the grocery store or by recycling or just your your sort of overall daily practices. But if you have a, a Wells Fargo credit card and your deposits are being used to finance some of the largest fossil fuel projects in the world, it can completely uh, nullify all of the things that you care about. Um, and so a solution like Aspiration is is offering these products and services to you without that uh, element of concern, number one. Number two, it's a neobank. So a neobank is an uh, entirely digital online banking platform. And neobanks have this benefit of not being as tied to the fossil fuel industry. So you get this clean element of of deposits, but also the products and services that they can create can be tailored to decarbonization. So for example, Aspiration offers a a spending feature where any dollars that you spend at the gas station are marked, and then those are used to uh, purchase offset credits in the Amazon rainforest. And so you now know that despite the fact you're driving a non-electric vehicle, you are still carbon neutral in your in your uh, gasoline purchasing. You're swiping your credit card, and the underlying uh, artificial intelligence knows, okay, that's a gas station, um, and so it's then calculating how much gas you purchased and buying a proportional offset credit. Got it. That's the thing about finance, I think, in general, is that it's this invisible thing, and yet it has so much power. Um, definitely. And I, and I definitely think 
you know, there's power in numbers too. So, so much of this is driven by the consumer and the education of the masses is so important on this issue because if all of us demand that these products and services are the norm, all of a sudden Bank of America, Capital One, Chase are all going to have these features front and center. So we just talked about banking. I understand that there are other areas where you're seeing fintech support climate action. And one of those areas is in lending or in debt financing. So here, crowdfunding has emerged as a popular model. This is where large numbers of people can pool small amounts of capital using digital tools to fund a larger initiative. So in the climate space, this could be something like a wind project or a solar project. I can sort of understand that concept. Um, Aaron, what would be another example? Another example are uh, pay-as-you-go leasing systems. Um, There's a lot of use of blockchain out there in the issuance of uh, green bonds. And when I say a lot, it's it's still small amounts of money, tens of millions still. But the application and the utility has been proven to work. And so now institutions are looking at using blockchain to issue much larger amounts of uh, uh, sustainable debt, green bonds, as part of their, um, their loan books. Right. So green bonds are financial instruments specifically designed to raise money for climate and environmental projects. And as you write in the report, the use of blockchain can reduce costs of doing these green bonds by cutting out the intermediaries. So the technology does the tracking and impact reporting and can offer greater transparency, all of which are necessary ingredients of deals that support climate solutions. I just wanted to add another example to that. Just uh, Aaron, to your comment on pay as you go solar, you know, PowerHive, I think is a really good example, which we feature in our report as well, which is, you know, they essentially um, people purchase credits and and they pay their electricity bills through SMS. And PowerHive has been, you know, the first privately licensed energy provider in Kenya. And they have a very, very unique initiative called the micro. Uh, PowerHive Micro Business Program, which gives customers loans and guidance on how to use electricity to power new businesses. And so the pay-as-you-go we're seeing in sort of developing uh, and emerging markets is also a growing sector. Just in addition, this company is not really a startup, but uh, I do want to highlight Ant Forest, which is uh, a, a Chinese application that I think many people have heard of, which is essentially encouraging people to live more sustainable lives. And by doing so, you get uh, essentially credits to build your own tree. And that would then lead to trees being planted. And uh, hundreds of millions of trees have been planted as a result of that. So this is just a massive consumer uh, base of, of users in China. And and I think that really speaks to the citizen empowerment, uh, which is a core piece of climate fintech, right? It's, it's us, it's everyday citizens who are really going to be driving this transition. Just back to your question, uh, uh, Julia, I have to say, you know, there's another company called uh, Miotech in Shanghai and Hong Kong, and, and they're, you know, an ESG sort of rating uh, startup. Um, and they, they essentially, they help corporates essentially access and filter and screen through uh, large amounts of data. Oftentimes, when, when companies are providing their, their data, so, so, you know, they can be assessed whether you know, they're ESG aligned or not, it, it comes in different forms of PDFs to doc files. 
and and they've built essentially a platform that can filter through all of that and derive uh, key data points that can make the entire process more streamlined. So Miotech is a, another interesting one coming out of Asia. That's super interesting because we had on an investment manager at the California Pension Fund, CalPERS, and she was talking about how the access to information, both getting it from things that they would invest in, like a real estate project, they need to first know what are the climate risks that that project faces. But then there is just that that bureaucratic work of ingesting all of that information and actually putting it in a format that they can then integrate into their investment decision making. It sounds like it's just a bunch of paper pushing, but it sounds like it really makes all the difference as to whether or not they have the right information about an investment to know whether or not they should really back it based on whether or not it's actually good or bad for the climate or whether it has some climate risks. So it sounds like the startup you just mentioned is is hitting on that pain point. Is that right? Absolutely. I mean, going through, you know, scanning through and, and, and scraping through all that data is 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 sort of a business in itself. And right now, there's no perfect format or standard format that a lot of people use. And so they've developed a technology that can address that, that pain point. So, so as you were saying, you know, sifting and sorting data, especially for some of the largest investors in the world, you mentioned CalPERS, is, is enormously difficult. There's so many inputs and uh, there's a lot of different ways to try and digest that information. It was a lot of the considerations that go into an investment decision now incorporate a number of different types of risk analysis. So to sort of separate that world, there's transition risk analysis and there's physical climate risk analysis. So you look at those two things, uh, the first being what's the implication of the energy transition? What's the implication of holding stranded assets on your books? And the other is looking at actual physical changes to the globe, to the earth, using satellites, using sensor technology, and then making investment decisions based on uh, predictive models. So those two types of risk analysis are, are very reliant on data and especially reliant on artificial intelligence to make uh, self-improving decisions on what they think will happen in the future. You know, it's, it's extremely useful when you have millions of, of data points out there, you can't uh, have a human sort through that. And so if you're able to design uh, algorithms or natural language processing, you can let that algorithm go to work and come back the next day and have a really valuable insight. So for example, we look at coastal flooding and whether or not insurance companies should uh, insure the construction project of a hotel in Miami. And there's now obvious reasons why that would be called into question or you know, if the pricing of that risk would be uh, significantly affected by the data that the satellites are providing. And so suddenly the development of that uh, of that hotel might get shifted away a few blocks and it might get built using more sustainable materials, having a, a less of an impact on, on the planet. I guess, Andrew, to go to you, you know, New Energy Nexus's whole mission is to foster startups in this space. And so do you think that they will become their their own sector and kind of 
grow as companies in and of themselves? Or do you think the the exit opportunity is there for them? And of course, exits being where a startup grows and ultimately gets purchased by some bigger player, which is what a lot of startups want to do. Do you think this is a whole new world in climate fintech? Or are these ultimately going to be companies that go go be part of bigger banks or bigger, bigger financial institutions? Julia, no, I think that's a great question. Um, you know, as we in our report, sort of ecosystem analysis, we spoke to a lot of financial institutions. We spoke to a lot of startups in terms of, you know, what are the goals? What are they looking for? What's their two to three year sort of horizon look like? And I have to say, you know, in my opinion, I do think that a lot of these big traditional banks are starting to see, you know, wow, this this startup company now has got, you know, a million customers using their platform. And at the end of the day, it's 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 customers and it's customer acquisition. And I feel like the the path for maximum impact may be uh, a path for acquisition. You know, it's 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 the corporates that have the large infrastructure, the capital, and the resources to say, hey, I want to acquire this technology and integrate this technology into our financial structure. And obviously, there's there's a lot of things that come with that. But um, you know, in order for us to decarbonize uh, and reach our decarbonization goals, there needs to be some type of partnership between the startups and the big corporates, and finding a way to work together to uh, to fulfill the customer needs, but also at the end of the day to to decarbonize. And so, you know, it's it's uh, it's hard to say because every market's a bit different, Julia. Right, um, you know, we we sort of dove into U.S., Europe, and China. Each of these markets, from the regular st- standpoint, uh, from the financial stakeholder standpoint, to the startup ecosystem standpoint, all of that is very different. So, all I can say, from just a more generally, there needs to be more cooperation from sort of the big guys uh, as well as the up and coming startups. Yeah, I'm sure that depends on depends on what your business is, right? If you are a neo bank that's taking customers away from a traditional bank, there may not be the most uh, cordial relationship there, at least at the outset, uh, versus some other type of business model that's more easily integrated into some existing uh, uh, operation. Aaron, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, we're really encouraged by all of the open uh, banking and open innovation teams that are now uh, designated teams within these financial institutions. And their mandate is to look at the business units within the bank and figure out what technologies can plug into those to those business units. And then furthermore, they're engaging with the sustainability team. And so oftentimes you have the open innovation team alongside the sustainability team asking each other, okay, what tools, what applications, what fintech solutions are out there that can help us decarbonize the way we move money around? Right. And sorry, just to add to that, Julia, and and just going back to climate risk analysis and and just sort of the partnership between in startups and corporates and, and, and bigger companies, like we've we've been seeing um, you know, some acquisition happening in the climate risk space, right? MSCI I believe last year acquired Carbon Delta, Moody's acquired 427, and Morningstar acquired Sustainalytics all within the past year and a half. And so this type of integration, this type of acquisition, I do think is encouraging signals for the industry in terms of, you know, some of the big players thinking about how to how to be more conscious, environmentally conscious and and fulfill their customer needs. 
So we talked about what climate fintech is and some of the examples of companies working in this space. I know that you also looked at regional differences between China, Europe, and the United States when it comes to the emerging ecosystem that is climate finance. So to round out our discussion, could you describe what some of those regional differences are, uh, Aaron? Yeah, sure. You know, it's been such an incredible and challenging year around the world, and these three regions have responded very differently to the COVID-19 pandemic and, and to this sort of approach to, quote unquote, building back better. Um, and in the last year, we've seen remarkable synchronized policy from European nations, the implementation of the, the European taxonomy, the uh, ratification of the European Green Deal. Uh, you even have people like Boris Johnson surprisingly coming out and mandating drastic uh, reduction in, in carbon emissions in fossil fuel vehicles by 2030. So clearly there's this uh, understanding collectively in Europe that this is, this is a key moment. When we look at the states, it's, it's just been a little bit more of a hodgepodge. It's been a really challenging year on a number of fronts here. And so getting consensus around some of these issues has been a lot more challenging. And naturally, we're uh, encouraged by the incoming Biden administration. But despite all of the um, volatility this year in the United States, you've seen a, a record amount of uh, ESG, environmental social governance capital flows into uh, these thematic funds to the point where more uh, capital is flowing into sustainable investments this year than the past three years combined. Um, so those are really encouraging signals for the states. And of course, we still have our innovation hubs of San Francisco, New York, and elsewhere. Um, and so there is this sort of potential for a decarbonization renaissance in in the United States next year, so long as certain elements align. Yeah, I find that interesting because the policy framework is super important. It sets the tone and obviously can make regulations that literally require financial institutions to do certain things. But separate from that, we are seeing the capital markets and, and other financial institutions act on their own under consumer pressure, under activist pressure. So it's interesting to see these different these different motivators. Andrew, quickly to you, you're based in Shanghai. How would you describe the situation there uh, when it comes to climate fintech? Yeah, absolutely. So China is very unique in the sense that it's very top uh, top down approach, right? It's it's the government really setting the standard for where the country is going to be moving, and I think that that is uh, you know President Xi sort of committing to carbon neutrality by 2060 has really set the stage for everyone. Uh, to really move in that direction. So what what we see in China is is really a, a huge phenomenon because it is right now the, one of the world's it is the world's largest renewables market, right? Um, in terms of solar, wind, and now electric vehicle, uh, EV adoption, and it's it's very apparent in, in you know in Shanghai and Beijing and other cities, you know almost one in out of every five, uh, two out of every five cars really are are uh, electric vehicles. Just sorry, going back to, to, to the finance, right? I think, uh, you know, green finance and green loans and green bonds, uh, I mean, this is sort of the, the sort of the largest growing sector in, in, in China. You know, there's, there's really been 
issuance of of up to 120 billion of green bonds from 2016 to 2019. And that's almost quadruple the amount of, of, of what they had in 2016. And this is just an, uh, an example of uh, where, where a lot of the capital is flowing. And, you know, this trickles down to solar projects, uh, wind projects. So it's encouraging to see the regional differences are, uh, are different and they operate differently. But um, I do think that China is sort of moving in that direction. And just to sort of compare the three regions a little bit to each other on the on the fintech side, you know, we did a, a mapping of, of climate fintech solutions out there, about 250 companies, now 300, and uh, 43% of the solutions we found were domiciled in, in Europe. Um, closer to 30% of them were based in the States, and only about 8 to 10% were in China. So obviously, you know, there's there's this waiting in Europe but the, the smaller China percentage is not to be underestimated because it's a, a tremendous um, impact from, from a scale perspective with the population. I mean, ant forest is used by over 600 million people. It's a, just an enormous amount of engagement with gamification on your phone, planting trees as a normal uh, part of life. And so we're really um, encouraged by that. You know, we see the incentives that are being provided to those participants and believe that that could be uh, utilized much more widely in other regions. Well, I guess my last question to you all is, what is your favorite one of these fintech platforms? Which one do you use in your daily life? And describe for me how you use it. Andrew? As I mentioned before, AntForest, you know, that's obviously it's tied to our Alipay app. And it's something that it's very easy to use. And continue to be a happy user. Uh, and it's great to see all the all the benefits that come from uh, being a participant and user of this platform. Aaron, of the consumer-facing fintech solutions, what are the ones or what is one that you use and like? And let me add the question, do you think it's because, do you think that this is all part of a trend of sort of younger people becoming a little more financially um, powerful and deciding to go and deciding to be responsible with that power? Yeah, great question. One for sort of daily lives and, and consumer behavior. Um, I really like the platform REN, W-R-E-N. They help with sort of offsetting daily activities through a monthly subscription, and you can choose which product uh, which project, excuse me, you like um, around the world that you want to support through your offsetting dollars. So it can be $7 a month, it can be $15 a month. And that helps you purchase these offset credits in a way that allows for you to, to live carbon neutral. Another that I use is Open Invest. They do have a, a retail investor portal. It's a low minimum. And it's cool because you can sort of see what various publicly traded securities, what kind of carbon impact they have. And what about the millennial question? Are people like me the ones that are really driving this? Yeah, you know, we're, we're seeing a, some exciting trends in the States, surprisingly, around the, the pursuit and, and the popularity of alternative energy sources. I think now over 75% of U.S. citizens support uh, additional development of renewable energy. And so that's permeating um, certainly the, the younger generation. Over 95% uh, 
of uh, millennials have an interest in sustainable investing. And so that's a very powerful, potent number that's going to drive uh, development of products and services throughout the financial system in order to support those interests. And then, you know, obviously the, that capital flows to projects which are decarbonizing, projects which are helping uh, um, marginalized communities and uh, putting pressure on, on the largest financial institutions to facilitate the energy transition in a, in a seamless way. All right. Well, we will leave it there. A discussion about climate fintech, which I understand is digital financial technology to catalyze decarbonization. I know there are multiple sectors, multiple categories underneath that banner, and you guys have laid it all out in a report, and we'll make sure to link to that in our show notes. Thank you guys so much for breaking this down. Thanks, Julie, for having us. Thank you. Really appreciate it. This is the latest installment in Political Climate's Ditched series on fossil fuels, money flows, and the greening of finance. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll tune in to our next episodes. As a reminder, you can find the Political Climate Podcast wherever you like to listen. I'm Julia Piper. Thanks again. Until next time. Thank you.